Welcome to What Goes Around podcast. I'm Anne Frankenstein. And I'm Eamon Murtagh. And uh, we have a really exciting show lined up for you today, as usual. It's a real thinker today. Uh, But before we get into what's uh, happening in today's show, just make sure that you have liked and subscribed to this podcast because it helps us out a ton. It helps us get in front of new ears, which is what it's all about. If you know someone who you think would be into the podcast, please pass it along. And uh, also, if you want to say hi to us, please send us an email, whatgoespod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you and get your thoughts on the podcast. But the bare minimum, if you want to do something nice for us, the bare minimum that you can do is uh, hit that like and subscribe button because it really helps us out. Amen. It certainly does. And today's show is a corker. We start off with Anne in an angry mood, strolling down the canal side, frightening passers-by. That doesn't sound like me. (laughs) It does sound like you, darling. Um, (laughs) um, We talk about the content you're no longer content with. The things that you used to enjoy that now you listen to and think, that's a bit dodgy, really. Um, should I be listening to this? Uh, we also talk about a genre of classical music that I think none of us uh, are very familiar with. Well, neither of us really are. Maybe you're, um, you know, adept with your Beethoven and your Mozart and your Chopin and your Liszt. But uh, contemporary classical music is uh, a frontier that neither of us have breached before, and perhaps you haven't either. And that's why we recruited Dr. Lauren Redhead, an expert in contemporary classical music, to talk us through the genre, why she loves it, and what we should be listening to. And unbelievably, we have managed to bag one of the best guests so far. 50 years in the business, writer of countless, absolutely classic tunes, things like... It Must Be Love, that Madness covered. Um, he's been sampled by the Wu-Tang Clan, by Eminem. He's worked with Chaz and Dave. I'm talking about Labby Sifri. And we have got a brilliant conversation with him. He is a gentleman and a scholar. You're in for a treat. Let's get into it. Should we pod? Let's do that pod thing. Pod, pod. <laughs> <laughs> DJ Anne Frankenstein, mm-hmm. what goes around, hun? Well, I've been thinking a bit about lyrics. I've always had curmudgeon tendencies, but I feel like they're sort of solidifying in certain pockets, particularly when it comes to my um, musical taste. So uh, we talked the other day about lyrics and um, I listened to a lot of music when I was growing up. I was really into kind of all kinds of stuff, the same as yourself, you know, soul music, indie music, whatever. Um, And I was also really into uh, punk and hardcore music, mainly punk, sort of the UK stuff and the late 70s, New York stuff as well. I just thought that was really cool aesthetically. I've spoken before about how there were punks that used to hang out in central Dublin when I was a kid and my mum used to forbid me from even looking. Don't bloody look at them, for God's sake, don't look at them. So there was a, a, it held a lot of fascination for me when I was growing up. Um, So yeah, so I listened to a lot of hardcore music and I still, I still love that music. To me, like, 
that's the music that I would listen to loud when I want that feeling yeah. of sort of, you know, real freedom. The Ramones, and, you know, sounds like freedom to me. Black Flag, all of that kind of stuff, absolutely loved. And I listen to it with relish still. Misfits as well, who, I, you know, I, I knew a lot of people who were kind of obsessed with Misfits. Didn't like their kind of clowny aesthetic, but they made a lot of fucking great music. Mm. Brilliant little two minute nuggets. I was listening to Misfits almost exclusively on my way somewhere. I took a long walk and I was a little bit angry. So I stuck Misfits on. Or an and angry walk. Stomping. <laughs> <I was> <laughs> I mean, your gait must have been frightening. <laughs> You've seen me do my angry walk, I, stomping down the road I, I, I would, was. I would dive out. Of the, if, you were, if you were coming down a canal path, I'd dive into the water to avoid your angry walk. <laughs> I, I don't even fucking get me start, speaking of being curmudgeon don't even get me started on the fucking canal pad with all the oh, cyclists getting in my way it's my favourite place oh, it's my, my wife's always saying oh let's take a nice walk down by the canal it's not nice it's, it's contradiction in terms evil people on bikes zooming yeah, past you going yeah. get away ding ding <laughs> Oh my God, so stressful. But yes, it, you've set the scene there. It could have been a walk exactly like that, an right. angry walk down the canal. Right. I, I can see you now in my mind's <laughs> And I was listening to Misfits and um, th- this is an issue that I'm beginning to have more and more with music that I've listened to and enjoyed over the course of my life. Misfits have some lyrics that are c- clearly purposely provocative and quite mm. horrible. Same thing with, um, you know, people like Ice-T have a lot of super sexist lyrics, which when I first heard them and I was listening to them in my teens and early 20s, I was like, oh, this is fun. He's got a hope from the East and a hope from the South, haha, yeah. you know. And now I listen to it and I'm like, this is turning my stomach a little bit. And same with Misfits, they have some lyrics. That, yeah, I don't mind their lyrics about eating brains. That's totally fine and kind of cool. <laughs> well, I still- <laughs> You're like one of those uh, old religious censor boards. <laughs> Because like, eating brains, fine. Uh, nipples, no. <laughs> Down with this sort of thing. Yeah. Exactly. Careful but, <laughs> you know, lyrics about raping people and all of this kind of stuff, like, yeah. it just doesn't, ooh, it just taints the whole back catalogue for me slightly because it's like, you dickhead. Like, you're just singing yeah. this to... And I know Glenn Danzig, I can't remember the name of the guy who took over from him, afterwards but he changed the lyric to that particular track which was about killing babies and raping mothers and stuff he changed those specific words um but listening to the original rankles me a lot more now than it used to and we talked about lyrics after the miles chapman episode um or or on the miles chapman episode a couple of weeks ago and sorry for assassinating your character miles (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't like that it was more of a fast it was a fascination we were were, were stunned into into, into, (laughs) we we explored the idea exactly so in in light of what we were saying about how lyrics are so important um yes i guess i wanted to open up the conversation about lyrics being off-putting if there's things now that you're now that we're both a bit more adult yeah. and we've seen the horrors of what the real world is like, those lyrics don't seem so lighthearted anymore. What are your What are your thoughts, Amy? Marianne? Well, I have to say that uh, I didn't like the Misfits when I was growing up for mm. that very reason. Mm. I I really disliked Mr. Danzig. I thought he was a, a, a nasty piece of work, and whilst I, I enjoyed their power. Um, as soon as I listened to what they were kind of saying, I didn't really like it very much. I, I was quite a sensitive child. Um, uh, t- I totally see where you're coming from. I'm one of those people that when I get into something, uh, I, 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 I can almost forgive it anything for the first little while because I'm so enthrall of the sort of experience of it all. So I can really remember, you know, I, I got into lots of uh, hip hop stuff, you know, at the start of the old gangster rap. Now, for me, hip hop primarily was like a, a, a 
tool for social change. I'm like the Public Enemy era hip-hop fan. Mm. But as it went further down the line and Gangster Out, because, you know, I, I certainly enjoyed Straight Out Compton and um, most of the other stuff. But then it did get to a stage, you know, where... Um, I think in America, Kaka's Most Wanted by Ice Cube, he says something about kicking a pregnant woman in the tummy because he didn't want to be a dummy or something. And mm -hmm. it's just like, A, tummy and dummy is a shit. That's not even a good rhyme. Mate, make a little effort, will you? <laughs> um, but it, it just I just thought, do you know what? I don't mind. So you talk about IC. I don't mind um, uh, rappers that do build these stories and, and obviously they're, they're putting their creative sort of energies into painting a picture of this life or whatever i can take quite a lot of that mm. but then as soon as you you don't believe them or you don't believe their story as soon as you can tell that they're saying something for effect like that tummy and dummy line that's it for me i just i'll pull down the curtains i i don't want any more you know that's the no done with you now ice cube i've moved mm. on mm. and I, I really i really didn't listen to him again after that for many many years because i just thought I'm, I'm not really interested in that are we talking ice tea or ice cube here because ice, uh, ice cube, cube is... here i know yeah. ice tea um you know i saw ice tea um with body count do cop killer and all that back in the day mm. there's something about the the creative process and the drama and the way that's told the ideas behind it mean to me that that is still a valid thing to listen to mm. because I think they that it came from a truthful place. I think um, Ice-T uh, knows what it's like to be hassled by the police. I think um, Body Count uh, themselves were also very much, uh, you know, they were underground as, you know, so they were they were proper rejects of society shouting and bawling back at society. And that still rings true. So I can stick with that. But um, it's when bands cross that impossible to define line in your head and you just stop believing their shtick. Do you know mm. what I mean? Yeah. And, and nearly all of them do it at some stage. I get you. I mean, that's the difference between good lyrics and bad lyrics anyway. You can kind of tell when it comes from an authentic place and when it's just there to shock or sound, you know, it's just wordplay that's there to sound like the right thing. Yeah. yeah I mean, I get the fuck the police kind of stuff. It's more the super sexist really yeah. graphic <laughs> disgusting stuff which like <laughs> you can't deny it's like done in a really clever way and like I it's not that I don't enjoy listening to it it's just that it's like wow this this feels this in light of you know all of my experiences over the past 35 years this feels a little bit wrong um, but Ice Cube just to as, as you know seeing as you mentioned his name I mean he's gone off on some mad anti-semitic um, yeah yeah and he was always a bit now. like that as well he mm. was always um, you know the uh, a little bit on the on the racist side in general mm. he said some particularly cruel things about korean people and you know and, uh, and obviously white people i kind of forgive him the white people stuff because you know chase <laughs> we know we're bastards but um yeah, yeah i think again he's one of those people to me he's not really as nasty as he as he wants to make out i think it is bullshit do you know mm. what i mean i call bullshit on mm. a lot of that stuff same with Glenn Danzig. It's just like, oh, you're yeah, just like just a nerdy kid in school. deliberately wants... showing, he's like, there's a fantastic clip on the internet, we'll have to try and find it out, where it's uh, a picture of, it's, it's, it's in black and white, which makes it like particularly misfitsy anyway. But it's Glenn Danzig um, by a shelf full of books, which are mostly about, um, I don't know, demons and you know, witchcraft <laughs> and stuff like that. But weirdly, the shelf full of books is on the edge of a swimming pool. <laughs> 
And he's talking quietly about his love of, um, you know, Alistair Crowley and stuff like that. While this water laps gently at the edge of this bookshelf. Such a weird clip. It's amazing. (laughs) I've got to seek that out. We'll put that in the show notes. It's interesting how both of those types of music we're talking about exist on those so powerfully at those two poles like hardcore music and hip-hop music you have the super socially conscious stuff at one end like bad brains i mean you know they have songs that sound fucking really hard and tough and then you listen to the lyrics and it's like yeah we got that pma we got that attitude you know it's like it may as well be an anthem for like school kids (laughs) stay in school um and same same with with all the socially conscious hip-hop stuff it's just amazing that um at the other end of that, you have just horribly graphic, polarizing, sexist, racist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I have to say as well, uh, like I, th- I think one of my sort of bigger guilty secrets really is uh, I'm a big fan of electro. I love electro music. I is love... that a guilty secret? Or are you going to well tell me? because not cool? Is this another thing like Britpop that no, <laughs> no, no, electro is still bang on cool. Mm. But there's a particular strain of electro that comes from Chicago, Detroit, uh, mostly Chicago, I think. That's basically you know booty booty music. That's mm-hmm. what we used to call it, booty music. Um, and it is fantastic banging electro tunes. But unfortunately, quite a lot of them just have. Um, angry men shouting sexist things over the top of them. Now, when I first got into them, uh, people like DJ Assault doing tracks like Ass and Titties, um, or I remember DJ that Funk, one. you know, Every Freaky Night and stuff. And I don't know, there was something about the power of the music. And also my, it was like, during that phase of the lads and ladette culture, do you know, mm. where suddenly everyone was allowed to be a little bit wrong again in a kind of ironic way yeah um now i look at it and i think that's kind of bullshit that was a bullshit excuse but at the time it was kind of it was all right you know people were just people were just kind of loose and free and easy with all that i didn't like any of the 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 really crass stuff but certainly um i forgave some pretty lamentable lyrics over the top stuff purely because i wanted that bass so bad (laughs) And now I look at this little section of booty tracks that I've got in my record collection and I sometimes think maybe I should just get rid of those. But I'd never buy them again because I'd never be that person again. And they're kind of there really as a sort of reminder to me now of like, uh, you know, just think about what what you're doing (laughs) better. (laughs) We all need a section in our record collection like that. Yes, we should get people to tell us what, what 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 records they've kept that they really just cannot see themselves playing ever again. Yeah, what records you keep as a lesson to yourself. As a lesson, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got a few of those. I tell you, I got a few. So, do you think? Do you think I should give up listening to that stuff? Do you think it makes me a bad person? No, I don't think so. And I think um, you know, like I say, I, I I keep my thing my 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 boot tracks because it does it reminds me of of where you've been it's like um if you had a bad haircut a few years ago do you know what i mean you listen you keep one picture don't ever let yourself get that haircut again So we all know a little bit of classical music but how much do we know about contemporary classical music We feel like it's a genre that can be a little bit intimidating to get into, and that's why we've recruited Dr. Lauren Redhead, an expert in the genre, to uh, talk us through it, share some of her favourite pieces, and uh, explain why it's worth a listen. Hello, 
The term contemporary classical music is unhelpfully nebulous. It is not a genre. It is frequently used to describe music that is not, in fact, contemporary and very often the whole of the 20th century. Multiple traditions of music can be encompassed by this term, from serialism to spectralism to experimental musics when or if they take place in the concert hall. In fact, it is this venue that musics described by the term contemporary classical music seem to hold most in common, except when sometimes they don't. Which makes the task of explaining why one enjoys such music a difficult one. Even as I use the term contemporary classical music, it is likely we misunderstand each other. If you enjoy this music, perhaps you knowingly assume I am using this phrase to denote pieces that would not be widely understood by their genre labels. If you don't enjoy it, you might assume I am using this term to describe music that sounds bad. Indeed, this latter characterization is one that I believe has kept many people from coming to their own judgments about large amounts of music from the 20th century and beyond. Bob Gilmore eloquently defended the pleasure and the challenge of getting to know unfamiliar works in the essay Difficult Listening Hour. He wrote, people who close their minds to difficult music tend to miss one crucial point. For some of us, that very difficulty may in fact be a stimulus. Learning to comprehend a challenging musical style offers an intense pleasure and an excitement that a more familiar style can never provide. When we learn a new language, there comes a thrilling moment when the language, even if not yet perfectly grasped, starts to flood our thoughts, bringing a freshness that allows us to see and hear the world differently, almost literally through someone else's eyes. So it is with learning to listen to a new kind of music. The greatest modern composers are those who have successfully realised new worlds through the medium of sound. They make us hear that life is more colourful, more varied, more surprising and more unusual than we thought. They show us where we might go, not merely where we've already been. The difficulty is genuine, but it's part of the charm. But to me, even this wonderful quotation is not the whole picture. While I identify with the difficulty Bob Gilmore described, I also don't hear it in much of the music to which the contemporary classical label might be appended. I'm reminded of the statement by Adorno in Philosophy of Modern Music that the opinion that Beethoven is comprehensible and Schoenberg is incomprehensible is an objective fallacy, and that the Nacht was written much closer to Beethoven's death than today and that the Clertonat appeared in the underscore of Simon Langton's 1982 dramatisation of John McCarry's Smiley People to signal a moment of extreme emotion as Alexandra is left behind at the convent in Switzerland. If music has the ability to express emotion and human experience, then all music does so.
The languages that composers used and use in the 20th and 21st centuries do exactly this and are themselves vernaculars to the people who write and listen to them much more than the intellectual exercises they are sometimes portrayed as being. Rather than argue this point in detail, let me describe two important moments of listening for me in my early undergraduate studies in music. After a first year undergraduate lecture, we were given a handout with a list of pieces to introduce contemporary classical music. On a whim, I bought a CD by Luigi Nonno. There was no Spotify in those days. And I listened to the piece Fromentistila and Diatima. I knew nothing about the composer and had no idea how the piece was composed or even about the relationship with Herdlin. What I heard were delicately evolving textures, fragile and at the edge of speaking, punctuated by pregnant pauses. At that time, nothing could have captured better for me the impossibility of speaking about the world. The person who made the fortuitous handout was the composer Mick Spencer, who also lent me rare recordings and bootlegs from his own personal collection. From one of these, I heard the piece Undas Fear for string orchestra by Matthias Sparlinger. Again, with no context, I heard a musical moment that spoke to me deeply in a long passage of repetition of string pizzicatos, the sound at once forceful and direct, but splintering at the edges introducing imperfections and inviting me to listen around and inside of it. Again, I heard a moment of extreme beauty that spoke to the way I heard and saw the world. Listening to this music on a copied CD, probably passed between hands at the Darmstadt summer courses, only made this moment more exciting, as if I'd stumbled upon a secret musical language that up to that point had not been accessible to me in the concert hall or on the stage. Both of these moments, among many others, inspired me to compose, to spend dark nights in Huddersfield traipsing between cold venues to recreate some of these moments of extreme beauty, to seek out the unfamiliar. These experiences of what might be termed contemporary classical music convinced me that music has a lot more to express and more directly so than a limited range of cliched emotions. That there was, after all, a vernacular musical language in which I could communicate. I am, of course, aware of the problematic histories of the institutions of this music, and that those histories influence the fact that all of the composers and authors I've mentioned here are white men. I can't change the formative experiences I have had, but I am aware of the tensions and contradictions of enjoying something that one can nevertheless find to be ethically problematic. But for exactly these reasons, I don't wish to abandon this music, but work towards its greater inclusivity and the representation of composers from those groups who have been ignored. I want the experiences of beauty, of hearing one's musical language that I have had in this music to be open to everyone who wishes to search for them.
What we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back. Way back, back into time. We are so excited to welcome our next guest to What Goes Around. He is a brilliant musician who's written some of the most recognisable tracks in music history, which have been covered and sampled endlessly by the likes of Madness and uh, Mark Ronson, Eminem, Kanye West, Jay-Z, the list goes on. Uh, In fact, 2020 marks his 50th year in music and he's got a nine CD box set on the way to celebrate. He's an eminent poet and playwright, a social commentator and philosopher whose wisdom is a breath of fresh air, most recently (laughs) in that bear pit that we call Twitter. Uh, And today he's here with us sharing his phonographic memories. Lavi Sifri, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you both. (laughs) You're laughing. Why does that make you laugh? All of of what I said was true, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, okay. All right. (laughs) But you're a busy man, because obviously you have the box set coming out, and you constantly seem to be working on stuff all the time. You do a lot of writing, and you do a lot of tweeting as well. Talk to us about your relationship with Twitter. Well, the reason I went on Twitter, which was about 11 years ago, the challenge of trying to say something, hopefully something useful and Mm. vaguely intelligent, in 140 characters or less, including spaces, 140 characters. Mm. There's a very embarrassing essay uh, by George Orwell uh, about grammar, um, and and it's aimed specifically at British writers. And I suppose it came from his work as a journalist. It was, all, it was all about less is more. And I, I thought the discipline of trying to say, especially trying to say things in detail in 140 characters, was an exercise that would do me good. And it was really tough. Uh, and then they put it up to 280. And that actually, in 280, you can actually do some detail. It's always really nice when you write something for Twitter and it's 600 characters. Mm-hmm. And you have to get it down to 280 and you can manage to do that and still be relevant which means of course that probably most of the stuff that you've written in the first second or third draft is verbose beyond beyond acceptance um but editing down is good uh, and it's a good exercise and of course going on twitter is is really the business of uh if you think you've got something to say that can help, um, then you've got a duty to enter the debate. Yes, uh, I have to say there's there's nothing more satisfying than uh, looking at a tweet that you're forming and then it being slightly over and then just going back and finding all the ands and making them into ampersands. And yes. <laughs> save yourself two letters a go each time you do that. Yeah, <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, it, it helps. Uh, yeah, I mean, it really does. And, and actually, uh, uh, as far as poetry is concerned, it's also uh, important uh, because less is more in poetry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and jazz too. <laughs> well, if you're Miles or Ahmad Jamal, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what What are you working on most at the moment? Because I know you've been in the studio making making music. What takes precedence at the moment? The music or the writing or the tweeting? At the moment, 
um, self-discipline <laughs> yeah. takes, takes most of it. This, uh, this has been a difficult time for, for all of us, mm. uh, and it's certainly disrupted my mm. life a great deal. Uh, although uh, it has to be said, I'm in a much better position than uh, a hell of a lot of people. But it is it is a it is a debilitating situation. But at the moment, I'm I'm working on what I hope will end up as the next album. Ooh, uh, um, <laughs> but I've been saying that for a couple of years. Um, <laughs> um, we'll wait. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've I've got a batch of songs. Well, I was supposed to go into the. Stu- I had the studio booked and everything, and we were we had some tracks, and we had uh, I had a great great group of musicians, and we were supposed to be getting on with uh, with doing part of the album, and um, and then I got I got trapped here before that, okay. so in so in fact I I went uh, so I've been, I've been in lockdown for quite a long time, uh, because. Um, I'm somewhat elderly, you know, so I'm <laughs> slightly at slightly at risk. Uh, I'm working on the album, um, and it's it's um, <laughs> it's nice. No. <laughs> You've still got a real um, real drive for it, then. You, you still find yourself uh, perhaps equally with the writing and things, but uh, you seem like someone who uh, once you're once you're committed to doing that, you throw yourself into it. I. I think I get most job satisfaction out of the writing. There was a stage in my life where I admit to being an al- uh, not an alcoholic, although I made an effort at that uh, <laughs> a long time ago. Uh, I made a very good stab at it. Fortunately, fortunately, I, I, I learned the errors, error of my ways. Mm. There was a time when it was write a song. As soon as I'd finished it, it was write another one. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I finished it, write another one. Uh, and it was just one after the other. I just kept writing and writing and writing. The, the business of making things, which is what being an artist is. You just, you make things. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that's what an artist is. Oh, and by the way, when you call yourself an artist, that is not an elevation. That's merely a job description. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a plumber or I'm a doctor or I'm a dentist or I'm a, a packer at wherever it is, at Amazon or whatever. I, I even got to the point of thinking, of, of resenting having to record or, or perform because it seemed to me, well, I've written it now. The mm-hmm. next thing I should do is to write another one. Why, why do I need to record it? Mm. Mozart, for example, uh, if you look at his scores, there's no crossing outs. For Mozart, he heard the full orchestra in his head, got the manuscript paper and just wrote it down. Mm. Wow. No errors, just wrote down what he heard. No errors, clean no crossings out. Beethoven does lots of crossings out, but Beethoven also could hear the orchestra, the full orchestra in his head, uh, as he got deafer and deafer and deafer. Mm. Now, um, I had this, I had this question with myself, which was, if Beethoven and Mozart had never written anything down, would they still have been geniuses or mm. genii? Um, and I finally had to come to the conclusion, because I thought, yes, they would be. And then I finally had to come to the conclusion that it was the making it concrete by actually getting it onto paper, or nowadays getting it onto a recording, actually make, making it concrete. I think that completes the genius bit. Mm. On the other hand, on the other hand, okay, Einstein, theory of relativity. I don't think it's crazy to think that somewhere, someone we've never ever heard of, 
who possibly never even ever went to school thought of it as well. Mm. And we've never heard of them. And they never wrote it down. Does that mean that that person is not a genius? Mm. Anyway, this is, the, this, this is the kind of time that I uh, spend thinking about. Yeah. I, I saw a lovely thing with... Um, uh, Charles Mingus, they were talking about like uh, 1959, was it, when all those great jazz albums came out, Kind of Blue and Arham and all that. And ah, Charles... Mingus Arham! Yes, ah, yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, out of which, uh, Better Get Into Your Soul. Oh, so, so good. And, and goodbye Port Pie Hat and all that. Speaking yes. of genii. Yes. One, of the, yes, yes. one of the things that made him stand out in, the, in, the, in, in that time was uh, him and his circle, they were very, very hot on writing things down. And they said, look, there is no point you having a great session and, you know, blowing some great tunes or, or coming up with a nice melody. Write it down. Because if you haven't written it down or recorded it, it's lost forever. Do you know what I mean? And there, it oh, became that, a yes. real work ethic with him that he really wrote every single piece down he possibly could. Well, I certainly agree with the business of, of get it down somehow. I mean, when I... Well, at, at one stage, I had the idea, don't write it down. If I, if I don't remember it tomorrow, it can't have been any good. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a big risk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I... Because I was looking for strong melodies, and I thought, well, if I think of a great melody today mm. and, I, and I've forgotten it tomorrow, it's not a great melody. Mm. Um... But I soon learnt the error of my ways. When I have the slightest idea, I write them down because ideas are easy. I mean, I have ideas constantly. In fact, sometimes having constant musical ideas can be an inconvenience. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, uh, when I'm in conversation with people face-to-face, uh, -face, they often make the mistake, I think, uh, of believing that I'm in the room. <laughs> well, part of me is talking to them. I mean, I long ago realised that for me, th th there's no such thing as background music for me. So if I'm talking to somebody and music comes on, half of me is not talking to them. Yeah. And half of me is finding out, is that good? Is that something to learn from? Uh, you know, it's, it's so, so... Yeah. So, so uh, yeah. Like, like you say, I, I write everything. I, I write everything down. Even going up to strangers and saying, "For goodness' sake, have you got a piece of paper?" <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. It must be so nice to have such an abundance of ideas all the time. But I totally get you about not being able to listen to music passively or have quote unquote background music. I'm the exact same. I can't understand people who can work, for example, with music in the background. My ear will just go in the direction of the music, good or bad. I find it... Um, I See, I'm outnumbered here because I, 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 I can't have no music on. <laughs> I just find it... has it, to be constant. It can't be passive for me. I, yeah. I just, yeah. I think it's... I'm, I'm actually ignoring the people in the room, but I'm just happy with it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's it. Um, but, Labby, we asked you to choose three tracks for your phonographic memories, which we'll get into. But first, I just want to touch on, you know, going back to what you said about writing great melodies and... and um, you know, um, making sure that, that what you're putting out into the world is memorable. I mean, you've written tracks that are sort of solidified in the culture, like so much so that they're not just covered all the time, but they're sampled as well. You know, people hear new things in your music all the time and sort of reuse bits and pieces. How does that feel to have made, to have made music that, that's used by people in that way 
so much. I feel like you're quite a unique artist in that way and that you've been sampled and covered so much. Um, it, it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, it's, it's nice. Oh, so you don't, you don't, you're not one of those people that sort of says, oh, they're stealing my light, you know, that's all my hard work and they've nicked it. Oh, um, no. I mean, I, I prefer it. I prefer when people do their own versions mm. of things. I mean, even when I, even in the early days when I start, was starting, I was I never liked the idea of, of doing a cover that was just a copy. I've never seen the point of that. You have to take it and make it your own. So I like it when people are constructive in mm. their sampling. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm pleased that I'm pleased that people use the stuff. Um, yeah, that I'm, it, it's nice. That's a very diplomatic response. I like that because I, I always think um, it, it, there's something lovely about um, finding extra joy in something. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I think that's often what sampling manages to do is it brings something that already has a lot to, to give to the world. And just especially when, like you say, they, they use that sample in a slightly unusual way. You just think there's another another layer of interest there that maybe you didn't even see when you were when you were writing it. Sampling has been going on since Bach and beyond. Mm. I mean, I mean, the business of the business of taking a piece of music from somebody else and turning it around and making it making it into something else. That's what music is about. I mean, yeah, I, there, there are no composers who haven't done that. You know, mm. so so it, it's not as if we've. Uh, We've uh, suddenly, uh, our generation or the generation after, certainly the generation after mine, the generation when, when sampling started, um, the fact that it's in the, in the medium of recorded music, it isn't new. It's not a new idea. One of the things that's problematic for me is when, for example, something is sent uh, to ask if it's okay to use, and you find that virtually the whole track mm. um, is you mm. <laughs> yeah that's and that's when and that's when the discussion gets can become uh, a little uncomfortable for the people who, who might want to use the stuff i have had a couple of things sent where literally not not, not just the, not just the music but also also um some of the lyrical ideas have been used and 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 people and and that work has been claimed as as a new work mm. by, by these people. Yeah, are are that's, you sampling that, or are you covering? That's that, you know that's when that's when a conversation has to has to be mm. had. Mm. But in the main, but in the main, I mean, if we're talking about all the, all the people who've covered my stuff, um, yeah, I, I'm 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 happy with it. Should we dig into your phonographic memories then, Labby? Because the first okay. one that you've chosen is, um, you know, we were talking about, about uh, the cover versions and people singing other people's songs. The first one you've chosen is a, is a jazz standard, really. Um, Frank Sinatra's version of One For My Baby. Can you talk to us about, about this one and what it means to you? I first heard this when I was, uh, I'm, I think I was about 11 hmm. when I heard this. I, th I, I think it was in 1956 or 57 that I heard this. 
My father's record collection uh, featured a lot of Eartha Kitt. I think, I think possibly Eartha Kitt was the first music I heard. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, and I liked it. That was fine. But I, I hadn't actually been smitten with any art. And I, I think I was 11. And my father bought, bought uh, a Sinatra album and one for my baby and one more for the road was on that album and he played it and I I was something happened that would happen to me constantly from then on to the present day my life changed I I was just struck it like bombs exploding like being bashed over the head with a with with information i don't know what it was mm-hmm. i i was just totally knocked out by this and looking back the thing that i find interesting uh is that aged i think i was 11 it, i wouldn't have been old, i wouldn't have been older than 12 11 or 12 i actually understood totally the lyric of the song i understood the pain of it i understood it was someone who'd found love and through his own stupidity, thrown it all away. Mm. I understood. I understood that, and I played it almost constantly for a couple of weeks. Um, and like I say, this happened <laughs> from then on. This just continued to happen for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, the, and it changed my life, mm-hmm. as all of these instances did. It. It. And I don't mean it in a. I don't mean it in a throwaway, it changed my life. I mean it changed my life. It changed me. And it changed my life. It's quarter to three. There's no one in the place Except you and me So set them up, Joe I got a little story I think you should know We're drinking, my friend To the end of a brief episode Make it one for my baby And one more for the road I got the routine Put another nickel in the machine Feeling so bad Can't you make the music easy and sad I could tell you a lot 
but you've gotta be true to your code. Just make it one for my baby and one more for the I was watching um, a performance that he did of, of that song on YouTube and uh, what really struck me about it because I, I, I'm not I've got a few Sinatra albums and I, I, you know everyone's everyone's kind of seen him in a background way um, but because you'd chosen this when I went and I, I looked for that song and there was him doing a performance I think it was actually at the Albert Hall or somewhere um, and what struck me was that his he was just a tremendous actor as well because a lot of the song is almost like uh, he's just speaking. He's singing, but he's speaking. And the the way like a really good actor would just draw you into a scene and make you forget everything else going on around it. There he was, you know, one man with an orchestra far behind him and hundreds of people in front of him, but you could only see him and you could only listen to him and, and that his charisma and the way he, he could actually say those words uh, it's just incredibly magnetic. Well, I mean, he was he was a great singer, of course. Um, I mean, he, uh, and at, at his own admission, he wasn't a jazz singer, but he certainly knew how to swing. I mm. mean, this isn't an, this isn't an example of him swinging, uh, but uh, he certainly knew how to swing. Uh, um, it, and there is there's funnily enough uh, a, a, another startling piece. As he got older, his range got lower. As well, and and uh, there's a remarkable piece of him singing uh, "Old Man River," yeah. which I'm not sure I'm not sure a lot of white people would would dare to do these days. He's in the ending, and he's in he's in the coda, and he 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 goes down and sings a very low note, and you and you think, oh, nice one, and then he goes even lower. <laughs> <laughs> To a place where you can't imagine he could sing that low, uh, and it was another one of those moments of, yeah, this is work. Mm. This isn't fun. This is work. <laughs> when you say when you say it changed your life when you first heard that track, how do you mean? Because I mean it's quite a it, that age is quite a formative time anyway. Were you sort of headed off in one direction in terms of your dreams and aspirations and then it sort of picked you up and pointed you in a different direction. What was the practical impact of that? The practical impact of it was that within a short time, by the time I was 13, I decided I wanted to be a jazz singer. Ah. Uh, up till then, uh, my only thoughts of what I was going to do was, uh, as a five-year-old, I decided I wanted to drive a sugar lorry. <laughs> that is such a good choice. Um, what well, sugar's loss is our game. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, um, um, it 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 no, it woke up in because interestingly enough, it was it was within a short period of time, within within a couple of years, I had discovered uh, Malevich, mm. who totally exploded my mind as far as painting was concerned as far as I hadn't noticed painting before mm. and uh, in fact the first was Kandinsky I, a couple of Kandinsky's I think it was 50 number 50 he numbered them number 54 or 56 I can't remember which it was now there's a couple of things on on 
on on YouTube of uh, of uh, uh, a father who was colorblind, and they've now got these glasses that can that can uh, enhance mm. the vision so that he can now. And you see the first time he sees colour, or the first time someone who was deaf, now having the cochlear implants and things, mm. the first time they hear. It's life-changing. Mm. And this, for me, when I say that these, these things... And I could think of thousands. <laughs> I mean, I mean if, you want, if you want, I'll go through a short list of <laughs> those moments that... that that you know it wasn't like he, oh i just heard something new fundamental change in me what was the context in terms of like your family because obviously your your um you know your family brought this record into the house like uh, were they affected by music in the same way were your peers into music in the same way or did you have to kind of find people after that who who were as into music as you were I think this is more than just being into music. Well, you know what I mean. I'm diminishing it because we, we all understand what you mean. <laughs> no, you no, so no, no, no. I, I, don't, I, I don't know whether people do understand what I mean. Mm. I mean, um, I mean, it's always of interest to me when I hear people talking about the 60s or mm. the 70s or the 80s. Uh, and they're supposed to be talking about the music. Mostly they're interested in the fashion. Mm. You know, the world is full of musicians who feel like this or the world is full of artists who feel like this about painting or about sculpture. If you want to know what this was like, the closest thing I can do to describe it to you is the first time, if you're one of those people, as I am three times happily uh, fallen in love at first sight, mm. that kick you get in the stomach that that devastating feeling that's what i'm talking about the first time i heard jimmy reed's let's get together the first time i heard prince in 1999 the first mm -hmm. time i heard ellington the first time i heard basie the first time every beatles album mm -hmm. every beatles album totally changed my life Prince with 1999 totally. Laura Nairo's album uh, New York Tenderberry. Ah, oh, stunning. Totally changed my life. Mm. Everything Miles did, everything Bird did, everything Monk, who's still my favourite pianist, everything Monk did. Uh, um, uh, when I heard Hey Joe, Hendrix Hey Joe, nobody had ever, I'd never heard, nobody had ever played guitar like that track. And I, I ignore everything he did after. That particular track, how he played. The first time I heard James Brown, um, I'm, I'm working in the jazz club, Annie's Room in London, and, and we're after hours and we're in the bar and somebody puts James Brown on and I'm listening and he's turned the rhythm around. He's turned, he's turned, he's turned the rhythm around. He's turned time around because everything's on the one. Mm. He's, turned, he's turned everything around. I couldn't work it out. Well, tell us more about um, your next track then, because uh, we've got three there. So what's your second phonographic memory, Labby? Um, I, th I think we're talking about, uh, the, about the four sections. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're talking about uh, the fourth section of the four sections by Steve Wright.
I'm, I'm led to believe that something inside so strong has helped a lot of people who have had battles to fight and have had problems and have found themselves being mm. pushed aside, all this kind of stuff, mm. and need something to, uh, to, to buck them up uh, and to help them to overcome whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm led to believe that that song has done that. Well, the funny thing about it is, I suppose, well, some people might think it fun or funny or odd. It doesn't do that for me. I mean, the reason I made it was to be helpful. And as soon as I'd written it, I knew I'd written something that was bigger than I'd imagined when I first started. Mm -hmm. but, but for me, when I'm uh, depressed or whatever, some of my songs I'm moved by. I, well, I'm, you know, actually I'm quite moved by some, quite a lot of them. But, but it doesn't do that bucking up for me. There are, there are other tracks that do. While I was trying to be a professional alcoholic, <laughs> uh, when I was in my early 20s, uh, until one day I woke up uh, in the morning, uh, went to the loo and vomited, and there was some blood in it. Yeah. And I looked in the, in the toilet bowl and saw the blood and... Uh, came to the conclusion that this was not a good idea mm. um, I, I, but at that time I was going through a bad time and I eventually ended up that I could start my day well if I played the third movement of Tchaikovsky's Pathétique mm. the sixth symphony and I would play that and then I would be able to get on with my day feeling I can do this and then there was, there's another, uh, Walton's First Symphony, um, which has, Walton's, Walton's First Symphony is Walton putting two fingers up to the world. <laughs> and and, and it, it, has, it has a movement, um, I think it is the third movement of that also, which has the instructions, musical instructions in Italian, con malizio, with malice. <laughs> I love it. And that's got, that's got to be the best musical instruction, with malice. <laughs> and, you, and when I hear it, it really is a to hell with you uh, uh, um, piece. And then this, the fourth of the fourth sections, the first time I heard it, I, I just, I came up, the word I used to describe was sublime. It, mm. it, it, it's one of the build, build, build tracks. You start simple, uh, like Ravel's Bolero, you start simple, or in fact, like uh, a track of mine, Let's Pretend, where I, where I tried to use the same device of starting small and building, 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 building. And rhythmically, what he does, there are these explosive bits, starting in, in a low piano and then parts of the orchestra do it. They do it for me when, and by the time it's finished, it goes on at the at the end. It goes on and it goes on with this phrase and this phrase and this phrase. Um, oh, by the way, there's also a wonderful piece in Walton's first where he does this rising, rising, rising line with the whole orchestra, with the full orchestra, and it goes up and up and up and up and up, and then suddenly, it reaches the top, and all of the orchestra has cut out, and all you have is the high, I think it's first and second violins and violas. Mm. And they're up. And the, and the interesting thing is, when you, when you listen to it, you have risen up with it. Yes. It's almost as if you're, it's almost, when, and when, it's almost as if you're, you're, you're in the air. You have left the ground. Mm. Uh, and, and, uh, and the fourth of the fourth 
uh, sections does that to me every time. If I'm if I'm feeling low, I play that, and it's uh, yeah, sublime. something that you found you could replace the alcohol with i'm just thinking as someone who who feels music so deeply um why why was alcohol a, a sort of feature in your your life and, and did that help you move, move on from the alcohol then having something you could replace it with that gave you a buzz that period was some months only okay it wasn't yeah. so you're just it trying it out <laughs> no i wasn't no i wasn't trying it out okay it was it was with serious intent okay and I did well, yeah. as far as as far as a serious content. Um, I mean, as you mentioned it, I've lived with depression since I was eleven years of age. Mm. I had childhood depression. I uh, and I live with depression, mm. uh, as do loads and loads of people. Mm. I mean, the uh, every time you walk down the street, you are walking amongst the walking wounded. I, I mean, as I said, I, as I said to my one of my doctors many years ago, when he was we were talking about depression, and he was talking about, well, uh, there are medications, you know. And I, I said to him, I can't afford to not have my depression. <laughs> <laughs> the artist dilemma. And that's the truth. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Nice, yeah, but I, I can't. I, I um, had I not had I not had it, I would not have written as I have written. And is it is it worth the trade off for you looking back? Do you do you feel glad to have had it? No. <laughs> and is this idea? I, I mean, this this idea of of uh, no. Mm. Uh, and uh, and I have to say, as far as music is concerned, there is there is very much a confusion amongst non artists. Let me mm. put it like that. There is a confusion between the product and the process. Mm. Because the product makes often, or more often than not, makes people feel good, they assume it must have been enjoyable to make it. Mm. Whereas nobody would ever go up to somebody who works on a production line uh, and end, it ends up with a car which people enjoy driving and everything, and saying, oh, it must have been fun to make it. <laughs> <laughs> There's work there, isn't there? I have to say that's something I, I resent. Mm. Yeah, I can understand why. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, this, is, this is work. It's mm. not fun, it's work. Mm. What you end up with, hopefully, is going to make people feel happy or feel better or comfort them or, or make them aware and, and, and help people. I mean, that was an early realisation of me realising what I was attempting to do way back in kind of 1970 mm. or 71, uh, realising that, that trying to be useful was part of, part of what it was about. But it's work. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I suppose that's one of the reasons why I'm not crazy about this false humility of I owe it all to my audience. 
Well, I mean, you, your your reasons for that are are, are um, you know are, are solid. Hearing you explain why, you know, it's it's um, it's interesting to hear a, a musician talk about it that way because I feel like a lot of people don't. Because yeah, there's an expectation that there should be some kind of false humility. Well, false humility is quite popular. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I owe, I owe it all to my, all, I, you know, I owe it all to my audience. No, <laughs> you owe a lot of it to the fact that you spent a lot of time learning to do what you do and probably being told you're wasting your time and why don't you get a proper job? Mm. You know, I, I'm this, the, you know, this is this assumption that, uh, you know, you, uh, you, I know, you get up at about two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, take uh, several spades full of cocaine, <laughs> uh, ring up uh, a few prostitutes, uh, and you then we all get into your Rolls Royce and drive off and do what you do, and then sometime in the day you kind of go, oh, that's a good idea, and you take ten, <laughs> you, t- you, t- you take ten minutes, you know, you take ten minutes out to write a song. Um, and then you just get back to your real life, which is s- s- wearing gold around your neck and and, and <laughs> saying, uh, uh, you know, I'm 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 better than everybody else, man. You mean it's not like you're breaking my heart here? You mean it's not all Rolls, Roy- Rolls Royces and prostitutes? Uh, well, well, if you if you look at if you look at how it's presented mm-hmm. and how yeah. people seem to expect that it is and yeah. believe that it is. You would believe that that's the case, but mm. no, it's actually work. Should we move on to your third phonographic memory then? Because this is a bit of a, a musical left turn, or maybe it isn't. Jerry Lee Lewis, you've picked this as your third phonographic memory. Talk to us about this one. Um, well, this, like the other things that just hit me very hard, I went and saw... I can't remember what the movie was called. It was in black and white. Mm. And uh, Jerry Lee Lewis appears on the back of a flatbed truck with an upright piano on it, singing High School Confidential. Mm. It's just a remarkable track, and it's an amazing performance. And then he came to, he came to England. And he came to England and there was a, to do a tour, but he had married his 13-year-old cousin. Mm-hmm. Uh. Uh, he, he, he lied and said it was his, she was 15, but he was 30. I th- for, for, for people who might be aghast, it's good to know that there are still several states in the USA where, th- where there is no age limit, under age limit, at which children can get married or have sex. Terrifying. There is no age limit in several United States states. Mm. And, of course, child marriage is uh, very popular all the way around large parts of the world. Um, um, it's called child marriage, but I think it could... Uh, I think the other word for it is paedophilia. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, he, he'd married his 13-year-old uh, cousin. Uh, I think they stayed married for quite some time. The newspapers, of course, went, went wild. Uh, but I was thinking about the music. I went to the gig he did at the Gaumont State in Kilburn High Road. There were very few people in the audience. Mm. And so I was able to move from the seat that I'd bought at the back of the theatre to row three, where I was close enough to, 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 to see them all really close up, but also far enough away to see the whole stage. And it was an amazing gig. It was an amazing gig. One of the things I remember about it, I, I don't think I'm wrong, 
there was no bass player. Mm. There was just Jerry Lee Lewis, piano, a guitarist, and a drummer. It was a great, great gig. Mm. Really was. Open up a honey, get your lover boy, me, that's knocking. Why don't you let the nummy sugar all the cats are at the high school to rock it? Honey, get your bopping shoes for the jukebox blow the fuse. Hey, everybody hopping, everybody's bobbing, bobbing at the high school hop. Well, the bobbing at the high school hop. Taking at the high school hop. Off in the high school hop. Rocking at the high school hop. Well, everybody hopping, everybody's bobbing, bobbing at the high school Interested that you um, uh, you said you know with all this Ferrari going on about his child bride and the the scandal and I, I can just imagine how the newspapers were you know feasting themselves on that, but uh, you, you very clearly say no. I, I was listening to the music. I, that I, that was your focus completely. Are you one of those people? Then uh, can you, you know, uh, are you are you good at just totally divorcing? you know, the societal stuff from, from the art itself? Because uh, it's certainly nowadays, in you know, with all the cancel culture and all that sort of thing that people talk about, um, it's becoming less and less that, that that happens, really. It's like everything now gets bundled together. But the art is there, isn't it? It is there, and it is, it is a thing on its own once the artist has left it. I think this is one of the things... I mean, I learned at Annie's Room because... Uh, which was sometime in the, in the uh, probably about 66, 67. Uh, 67 it would probably have been. I learned then because some of my jazz heroes came down to Annie's room and, uh, and, and did a week there. And I learned then that people can be brilliant at music and be not nice people mm. or they can be brilliant at music and be very nice people like big joe williams who i remember <laughs> I, rem I remember him standing towering over us over the three of us uh, bob stuckey woody martin and, and me uh, bob was the uh, hammered organist woody was the drummer and then i was playing jazz guitar trying to be wes montgomery <laughs> and uh, and big joe williams stood towered over us and i remember him saying dignity always always keep your dignity uh, and I and I think that now when I say that to myself, I I I, I add on uh, dignity. Always keep your dignity. And then he gets into his pink Cadillac and drives off into the sunset. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, I mean I mean I mean this is something that that humanity's got to get used to. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I I think there is a lack of courage about this. And I'll 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 I'll, uh, I'll give you one example. Wagner was a disgusting racist. Mm. In his particular state, a disgusting anti-Semite. Dis you know, anti-Semitism is racism for those people mm. who think that racism is only for black people mm. and anti-Semitism is different. Wagner was a vile and horrible racist. And then you have to listen to the Siegfried Idyll, which he wrote for his newborn son. And it is a piece of such beauty now, the music is beautiful. Uh, I think one of the things that people ha haven't quite managed to wrestle with is that torturers who clock in at nine o'clock and spend the day 
putting electrical things, uh, batteries and electrical pincers on people's genitals and tearing fingernails out and beating the hell out of them and putting them in positions that they have to hold all day in agony. They go home, those torturers, to a loving wife, loving children, a loving dog, all of whom love this person who is very different to them mm. and who has... Ah, feelings for them. Mm. This is one of the things that is, is, is difficult for people to, to, well, possibly they're afraid of it. It releases these hormones that make you feel good. And the more you believe, it, the more it helps you. The truth of the matter is, unfortunately, it doesn't matter what you believe. Mm. So, for example, white supremacists feel good about their superiority. And that makes them feel good about themselves. And that makes those hormones of being good flow. It also is the case that all of us have the same human instinct urges to perhaps nurture and be nurtured. And they are separate for how we view other people. I mean, when I was much younger, I was very confused by the dual morality of there is the morality of what you do when you're at home, and then there is the morality of business. So, for example, if you're my friend, I don't rip you off. Yeah. But if you're someone I don't know and I'm in business, I can rip you off and feel good about it. There is nothing simple. We are, we are, we, we, we are, this is one of the problems with conservatism. Conservatives like to think that everything is simple and can be compartmentalized and there is a yes and a no and a black and a white. Human beings, there is nothing about us that is simple. We are complexity upon complexity upon complexity upon paradox on toast. Mm. <laughs> I'm just sitting with that. I do have my happy moment. moment. <laughs> yeah, no, it's one of those ones where, like, uh, you know, you do, I, you do have to sit and process that and think about it because mm. I always find it difficult. Um, I think you want to love your heroes, don't you? You want to. You, you, you want to feel, certainly with, with pop music and me, I wanted to be in those gangs. I wanted to be David Bowie's mate. I, I'd like to hang out with the Beatles, or, you know, all those kind of things. And latterly, of course, when I was a teenager, the big thing for me were the Smiths and I absolutely adored the Smiths and I thought Morrissey was going to be my new best mate. Time has not treated that relationship well, and, and now I find it quite... I can still listen to the early stuff of the Smiths because I associate that with him before he went on his big sort of nationalist trip. But I can't listen to the later stuff at all because I can't forgive him. I can't, he doesn't get that five yards head start before I start judging what he's actually saying and how he actually acts. I never... All that business about you being friends with your heroes... I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm. I was always interested in the work. Yeah, yeah. Because, because there's no way you knew those people. You don't know your heroes. I mean, this to me is the same nonsense about. I mean, when Princess Di died, I thought to myself, if this is how they react to someone they don't know, I dread to think what will happen if someone they actually are in real that they really know and have invested love and nurturing in. And when they die, I mean, where will they go? 
Mm. I mean, that's like, uh, that's like uh, you know, a hamburger can be awesome. Uh, a football goal <laughs> can be awesome. How the hell do you describe the universe as very awesome? Extraordinarily <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean. So, so in fact, I never had any illusions about the fact that the people who musically were my heroes, that I knew them. I mean, I think that's just an incredible conceit. Mm. Um, uh, my my and, defense and, uh, would be I was young. <laughs> and as, well, no, no, people, pe people still carry that through to their old age. Mm. Um, and as, I mean, for example, Morrissey. Morrissey, I admire for one thing, which I did at the very beginning, which was, as far as lyric writing is concerned, he totally rewrote how to write lyrics. Yes. Okay. I mean, I mean, if it, don't give me all that nonsense about having to rhyme. <laughs> you know, and, and that's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Now, I can't get away from the fact that he does something brilliant. The fact that he uh, might now, because I haven't followed closely any, any closer uh, than, than picking up the fact that he's become more and more and more right wing. Um, the fact that that has happened has absolutely nothing, will it, I don't know whether it has anything to do. It, has, it doesn't take away from what he did with how to write a lyric. Mm -hmm. Apart from that, that some of the songs were great as well. That is separate. The assumption is that the people who haven't been discovered are still as nice as you want them to be. You know, this, this idea that uh, now that we know about this person, we no longer can listen to their stuff. We can only listen to stuff and like it because we don't know what they've done. I mean, you may be listening, you may be the, the person who is, uh, that you're a fan of today, may, as far as you know, they may be a murderer, yeah. Yeah, a drug dealer, monsters. Um, I, I think, I, I think it, you know, it's a really, it's really a difficult thing for people. And I, you know, it, I agree, it's really difficult, but, uh, if Barenboim can take Wagner to Israel, I think the rest of us can give art a bit of slack. Pop music for me, uh, when I was younger, was uh, something that I wanted to be part of. But I think I think you're very much right that you know the art itself. You know the reason those songs stand the test of time. The reason that a, a great song written in 1970 or whatever and still sounds great is isn't because of you know the time or the person it's because it is a great song and and those things are they've got the half-life of that is very long indeed and it, it it's much longer than whatever wind is blowing that particular year do you know i'm i i, I mean <laughs> look uh, uh, i gotta say um i was born in 1945 and I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever. By the way, I'm apart, you know, I'm a I'm an atheist, homosexual, black artist. Mm. Um, so I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever that huge huge swathes, huge numbers of the people I really admire were homophobic racists. Because from 19, uh, you know, this is like the business of, oh, Churchill was a racist. Yeah, but just about every white person was mm -hmm. at that time. Oh, someone was homophobic. Yeah, but just about everybody was. You know, um, so if I, was, if I was to discover um, who was racist or homophobic, 
of the people that I really admire, I'd probably have to cross off my uh, list of people I admire so that there'd probably be only an eighth left, possibly, <laughs> possibly less. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting thought as well, because obviously you have this um, new box set coming out, this huge box set, which is connected to your legacy in the music industry. So presumably there's going to be a sort of press junket that you're going to have to or, 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 you know, at least some some interviews or some PR you'll have to do or, or, or will you? And, you know, if so, is that something that you don't necessarily enjoy doing or don't feel is relevant because, you know, you don't feel like you as a person should necessarily be connected to your music in that way or there should be that much of an interest in you as a person? Just put, let's put it like this. When, when, I, when I became, in inverted commas, famous, mm -hmm. uh, it took me about three months to realise that I was never really going to think that was a wonderful thing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I did music and do music because I wanted to be a musician. It never occurred to me that being famous would happen. Uh, that wasn't part of my plan because I'm not driven by, I suppose I'm not driven by the need to have attention paid to me all my 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 life has been my music and my domestic life mm. what happens at home has always been my home life has always been the most important part of my life uh, and there are loads of people in the business who in all sorts of businesses that they're where you're in front of the public who for whom that's exactly the same uh, they may just be a little bit better at, at the smiling part. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've certainly made us smile and think this afternoon. Absolutely. Absolutely uh, a pleasure yeah. to talk to you, Labby. And I'll be thinking and chewing this conversation over for many days to come, I feel. And uh, thank you very much for talking to us on What Goes Around. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Labby. Episode. What a great conversation. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you're curious about any of the music that was mentioned in today's show, uh, do go ahead and check the show notes. You'll find a Spotify playlist and a YouTube playlist there showcasing all of the music uh, that we mentioned on today's show. Uh, again, if you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. But more importantly, do uh, share our episodes on social media. Give us a like and a share if you see us posting something. And if you've got something to say to us, uh, within reason, send it to us at whatgoespod at gmail.com. <laughs>